Hey, you're listening to the Encounter Church podcast. To learn more about Encounter Church, visit us at ecdenver.org, or you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Did we not have a great Easter Sunday? It was, I, well, I did. I don't know about the rest of you. I had a great day. I really enjoyed the opportunity just to, to, to be celebratory and, and was so grateful for all of you who brought friends and family. Wanted to say hello to all of our online family as well. Just our prayers go out to you. We just know God has great things ahead for you as well of all of all of us here. And that's one of the things I really want to talk about in this series. We're going to be in this series for several weeks. Uh, I like the title "After the Resurrection." This is part one. Uh, this is 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 you know the the as you look up here, you can see it's the descent, the ministry, the rise. It should be you know the ascent. I'm sorry, that's a, a typo, but uh, I, you know that's the way it goes sometimes. But uh, it's the descent of the spirit, actually. You know, I should look at my notes before I open my mouth. What do you think? <laughs> sometimes it's good to do. It's important. So it's the descent of the spirit, the ministry of the apostles, and the and the rise of the church. And I just want to I'm going to share some nerdy facts with you. In the early 1990s, there was a whole bunch of spiritual surveys that went out, calling the state of the church in America. And there was tremendous enthusiasm because over 25% of the, the, the adults who responded to the survey from America said that they had had a born-again experience with Jesus Christ. That's here in America. And that, that, was, that was incredible. And you, you began to see the results of, of, of the charismatic movement and the, the word of faith movement and the, the Brownsville renewal and the, you know, the, the things that went on in Toronto and all of those things. You begin to say, oh, this is incredible. And, and going forward from that point, there was a lot of expectancy that, that something was going to shift in America. Well, something shifted. It just shifted the wrong way, and, and sociologists, Christian sociologists, began to ponder, and there was one gentleman who, who said this, and I, and I thought it was brilliant, actually. He said, surely one quarter pound of salt is enough to season a pound of meat. Isn't that, isn't that a, an interesting, that, that, you know, again, 25% of the population is salt, 75% of the population is not, surely that's enough to season it? But, but that's not what happened. So a lot of people have begun to say, you know, what's missing from the church? And what's, what's going on? And why aren't we seeing what we want to see? And, and I really do believe that the key to that question lies in, in looking at what the church of 2023 is missing compared to the church of 23, 23 AD, as it were. What was going on in that early church just after the resurrection? And so with that, over the next several weeks, we're, gonna, we're going to be looking at some things. We're going to ask ourselves, how did that church, the, the church of 23 AD, how did they become so successful after the death of their, of, their, of their leader? Jesus died. Yes, he rose again, but then he ascended. He's not around to, to provide leadership, to provide guidance. What, you know, why is it that, in fact, the church was more successful after his death than they were prior to that? Good question. Why did it continue to grow after Christians, especially Christian leaders, began to be persecuted, imprisoned, and killed for their faith? I mean, you know, there was a brief period of, of everything's kumbaya and all's nice, but then things got rough, not just rough, they got awful. I mean, the church was driven underground. You can visit the catacombs in Rome and see, you know, they were just trying to stay alive, and yet it thrived under those conditions. Again, it's a good question. 
What made it to continue to thrive well after the deaths of the original apostles? Have you ever heard the three-generation analogy? That, that, that somebody has a, a revelation or they begin a business or, or something occurs and the first generation builds it and the second generation lives off of it and the third generation loses it. And it's a pattern you see repeated in history, whether you were talking about family fortunes or talking about spiritual movements. You have that three-generation rule. And yet we see with Christianity that generation to generation for several hundred years, it just got stronger. That was one of the things they did in the early church. They really raised up leaders, which is why in two weeks we're going to have a very special service where we anoint, pray over, and really sow into young leaders. And young at my stage is anybody under 40. So uh, that's so. if you're out and about, and, and we encourage you to come and be a part that morning because we're going to be laying hands on people and really focusing on, on the message that, that Paul and Peter and others sowed into that generation. So that's going to be coming up. But, but they saw generational increase. What made the gospel, that message that they preached, what made the character of the early Christian, what was, what was it about them as people? What was about the communities that they created? Because the Christian communities were a counterculture to what was going on in Rome and Greece and Turkey and all of those places. What was it that made them so attractive to non-Christians? Particularly Gentiles who weren't even raised with an awareness of Yahweh or or Jehovah or, or whatever tradition you want to think about. I mean, the Jews were a very, very, very small group of people and then there's this small sect came out of Judaism And people said, I want what they have. I want what they got. Don't know what it is, but I want it. And why should we care? What difference does it make to us? Well, I answered the last question with this quote from an 18th century theologian named Walter Rauschenbusch. And he said this. He said, history is never antiquated because humanity is always fundamentally the same. See, that's why the Bible is timeless. You can read about people from 1500 B.C. and you can see yourself in their story. I I can relate to that. You can read about people during the time of King David and you can relate to that. You can relate to the apostles and the prophets and you can can relate to all the people that that are written about in the book of Acts. Why? Because we're the same. The same fears, the same anxieties, the same trepidation. Yeah, we got better sanitation. Praise Jesus for better sanitation. Praise Jesus for hot and cold running showers. Praise Jesus for food that wasn't poisonous. You know, praise Jesus for Grubhub and all of those delivery services. You know, thank you, God, for all of that. But the people that were bathing and that were cleaning and that were taking care of, they're the same with the same selfishness and issues. Yeah, we've superimposed some cultures that are superior because they're based on the Bible. But when you remove those Biblical cultures, men degrade back to the the pigs that they are, and every woman says, amen. And you see it time and time and time again, selfishness, bigotry, hatred, you know, all of that stuff just becomes a part of our culture again and again and again in history because people don't change until they experience a transforming work from Christ. So with that in mind, we're going to go forward. What happened after the resurrection? Well, Jesus reappeared physically. 
He, he made a, a specific effort to, to prove to his disciples and anybody else who would listen that he was alive. He said, you know, hey, touch, touch the, the, the holes in my hands. Touch, touch the, the hole in my side. Watch me eat fish. That's what your Savior did. He ate grilled fish to prove that he was alive. That's in the Bible. Can I get an amen? Because dead men don't eat fish. And they don't. And so, and so this was a huge deal because the thing Jesus was trying to say is that, that life is not as you think it is. That you think that everything you see is real, and yeah, it's real for the moment, but it's going to go away. And then it's going to come back, and when it comes back, it's going to be different. Just like I'm different. So he did that for 40 days. Second thing he did for the same 40-day period is he went around and he taught from the Old Testament. And it says that he opened up the eyes of their understanding so that they would read, read the Old Testament through the filter of his death, burial, and resurrection, which gives you an entirely different understanding of the law because you filter the law through the grace of Christ. That's where Christians sometimes mess up. They take the Old Testament and they don't read it through the filter of Jesus' blood. They don't read it through the filter of God's love and grace. And they, they try to incorporate Old Testament concepts into a New, Christian, New Testament relationship with God. And Jesus said, don't do that. In fact, he showed them differences about how that, that they could reinterpret Scripture. And it was hugely important. And then he told them to hang around after he ascended. So he, he ministered for 40 days, and as, as Steve alluded, there were people born, you know, came up out of the grave and things happened. He breathed on his disciples. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He ascends, and then there's a 10-day waiting period. Why 10 days? I can tell you after three weeks of research, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and I can tell you about the 40 days. So 40 days is interesting because that's symbolic of cleansing. It's symbolic of renewal. It's in symbolic of transition. Nobody really knows why there were 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost, except there were, and the disciples got serious about God during that time. They, they separated, and they, 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 they poured into the, spirit, the Word, and they poured into prayer, and they poured into each other, and they hung around until the Spirit of God descended. And then after the Spirit of God descended, they began their ministry, and the church began to be formed. The community of faith began to rise up. And so with that, we're going to be going to the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church. And I want to go to a very famous verse. It's particularly in charismatic or Pentecostal congregations, and it's Acts 2, 1 through 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Anybody know how many people were there? 120. How many of the believers were in the 120? All of them, all of them, everybody else had quit and gone away. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And they, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. You may say tongues in your translation. This was a watershed moment. This changed the church's future because it changed the people who were in that room. Now, again, we're American charismatic Pentecostals. That's our spiritual tradition. And so we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the context of, of praying in tongues. And I pray in tongues every day. I pray in tongues a lot. 
I, I encourage you to pray in tongues. If you haven't yet received that gift, I encourage you to ask God for it. Come up after service and ask our ministry team to pray with you to receive it. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift. But the point of it is that tongues was the evidence of something that happened to them, not the something itself. Okay? It's the evidence of something that happened to those believers. It wasn't what happened. It, it, it was just it was a symptom. What happened is the Spirit of God descended from heaven and then dwelt within their spirits. It, it merged with their spirits so that they literally were able to tap into the character and the power and the wisdom of God because the Spirit would search the things of God and share them with people. We became supernatural at that moment. Not just the apostles, but how many people were filled with the Spirit? All. That's why Christians have this promise, even today, that we can be filled with the Spirit, and it will transform us. And it is the single most important watershed moment in the history of the church. Not that their doctrine became so elaborate, and, and we have tremendous doctrine now. In, in 2023, we have incredible theological you know, treatises that have been written. We've, we've delved into the 66 books of the Bible, and we've analyzed them and, and documented them and historically researched them. And, and I love all that stuff because I am a Bible nerd. Nobody says amen, you know. It's, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think that stuff is really fascinating, but the point of it is that without the Spirit, it's just a bunch of bunk. That sounds awful. It's probably bunk is not the right word. I, I need a different word. It's, it's the Word of God, but, but the Spirit is what turns us into a different kind of creature, a creature that's capable of modeling the character of Christ, who, who is capable of taking the Word of God and not turning it into some kind of legalistic hammer that goes around and beats on people, but, but allows it to be a truth that invites people to step into freedom. Changes our communities, and, and you'll see in the book of Acts as you go forward through there in that early Christian history that there were some radical social, social issues that had to be addressed, and the Spirit addressed them. So we need to understand exactly what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and that's why I, I preached on it in February. And then... In Mark's gospel, it records this regarding the ascension. It said, when the Lord had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And whether that's physical or metaphorical, nobody knows, and it really doesn't matter. It just means that Jesus was put into a place of authority over the earth. And the disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. They didn't just go around and say, hey, here's something you need to know. They would pray for the sick, and the sick would recover. They would speak prophetically to people, and they would read their mail, just like Jesus did. They'd, they'd look at Otis and say, I know where you were last night. <laughs> I won't share it here, but I know. It's kind of like your mom did when you were in high school. It, 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 nobody else had a mother like that? <laughs> I had a mother like that. You know, I know what you did, boy. I know where you were. Even if she didn't, she figured it well, you know. But, but that's the, the point. What was this? That, that they became a supernaturally empowered people. And so their messages were not just, you know, these weird analytical debates about what might be truth. They got up and said, this is truth, and then they demonstrated truth. And that was effective. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they didn't just become supernatural. The priorities of early Christians were changed. They became kingdom-minded. 
and they put the kingdom of God first above anything else in their life. And, and that produced kingdom results. You can see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it says, All the believers, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. That's what they did. That was their lifestyle. That was their culture. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. Awe in what? Awe in the majesty and love and and, an amazing gift that was Jesus Christ. They got serious about their faith. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. And they sold their property and the possessions and shared the money with those in need. And they worshiped together at the temple each day met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I was uh, probably 18 years old, working at a hotel nights, 11 at night till 7 in the morning when I was in college. That's how I paid for my, my college. And I would sneak over after I got the, the hotel books done. I'd lock up the thing and put me back shortly and walk over to the 7-Eleven, which is next door, and, and get a soda and a hot dog. You know, that's an 18-year-old can eat that stuff. I'm in there one night, and a white van pulls up, and a bunch of long-haired hippies with shoes and robes and beards get out. And they come in, and they descend upon this 7-Eleven at 2.30 in the morning, and they're loading up with all this junk food. And I'm looking at, who are you? And he said, we're true followers of Jesus Christ. And I said, y'all look like a bunch of stoners to me. I don't know. (laughs) And they said that we're living out the gospel as it says in Acts 2. And this guy gave me their five-minute speech. And I'm thinking like, yeah, okay. I want no part of you. They were not attractive to me. Now, Now, why weren't they attractive to me? Because they missed the point. The point is that when you make the kingdom of God a priority, when you make the Bible and prayer and fellowship with other Christians and generosity and caring the needs of each other, when those become a priority, God changes your culture to fit the season that you are in. The season they were in in the first century required them to have communal sharing because they were under a lot of oppression. 1981 in southern Missouri, you didn't need to to wear, you know, a robe and a beard and sandals and run around looking like a hippie. It wasn't required. But you did need to put the kingdom first. So the question is, what if we made the word of God, fellowship with other believers, prayer, and carrying each other's burdens a priority today? What would the church look like? Those things are not the goal in of themselves. They are a means to an end. They're how the Spirit empowers us to be his witnesses in our generation. Because if we make those priorities our priorities, we become a supernaturally empowered congregation. We become supernaturally empowered people, and we begin to see results that don't look like what we've seen since 1993 to today, they look like 0 AD to 23 AD. They then began to counter opposition. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests and the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees. And these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection from the dead. 
And they arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. How many did we start out with? How many we got now? And that doesn't include women and kids. That's not a bad run, you know what I'm saying? That's a pretty impressive. And, and what's interesting to me is they take two of the chief guys, Peter and John, and they shove them in jail, and everybody goes, man, I want what they got. Does that make any sense? No. But it's evidence of the Spirit of God moving through their lives. In fact, this opposition only made them bolder. And, and, and they didn't let people define their potential because of their backgrounds. In Acts 4, verses 12 and 13, it, it says there is salvation in no one else. And, and this is Peter preaching. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the members of the council who were interviewing them were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men. That's a polite insult meaning that they weren't educated and special. They were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. We're not going to educate ourselves into a new revival, although I support education. I do. I think education is important. Stupid people have a hard time in this world. And it's a complicated world right now. Things are more difficult. But we're not going to educate ourselves into a revival. We're not going to debate ourselves into a revival. We're not going to protest ourselves into a revival. How we will enter into a revival is, is this. If we recognize and embrace the, the anointing of God that comes from the Holy Spirit, if we allow it to change us from the inside out, if we begin to, to recognize that there are kingdom priorities that God calls the church into, and that those priorities are the Word of God, their prayer, their fellowship together, creating koinonia, and then it's caring about the needs of others, of actually giving a rip whether you're making it or not. So we create this transformative community that, that, that is powerful. And then we realize that, that people don't get to define how effective we are. They don't get to look at us and say, well, but you can't lead because you're you're this or that, or you didn't get this, or, or you have these. We begin to realize that if God tells me I'm a leader, I'm a leader. If God tells me I have influence, I got influence. If God tells me I can do something, I can do it. If God tells me to dream big and believe that, that whatever I am can be used to God to do whatever he wants, I get excited. And suddenly I think, you know something? I don't have to be broke. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be intimidated. I can be, uh, I can be salt to this earth. Because that's what the early church did. They refused to let people limit them. How many people put down Christians right now? I mean, wait, come on. Are we respected in the communities that we serve? No, occasionally somebody will throw us a token, yeah, attaboy. You know, he's not bad for a Christian. Am I making that up? 
But has that got anything to do with the promise of God that says if we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto us? It says that if you'll tarry in Jerusalem, whatever your Jerusalem is until you're endued with power, you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, and to the outermost parts of the world. It says that I will speak dreams and visions to every generation. I will put my spirit within you and you will realize that you are not meant to be a second-class citizen of heaven but you're meant to rule and reign and thrive with Christ. As long as you understand what that means and your priorities are his priorities, if you're looking to get the the things that the world craves, you may be disappointed. But if you're looking to see the things that God respects and honors, he invites you into an incredible supernatural walk. And so this morning as we come to, to the end of this introduction we realize that the opposition that they encountered did not depress them, discourage them, or intimidate them. It just made them ask for more. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, it says, Oh, now, O Lord, this is, this is what they prayed. Hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Even the ones who had been filled before, which is a whole different thing. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing process, in case you didn't know. We keep getting filled. You can't look back and say, in 1982, somebody laid hands on me, and I got, I got filled with the Spirit and began to pray in tongues. I've been filled with the Spirit. What are you doing in 2023? When's the last time you said, God, fill me anew? This is in the book, really. I'm not making this up. This is the story of the church. And so what God did then was he shook the place, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they preached the Word of God with boldness. And that's what the That's what our our communities are desperate for. Bold, empowered Christians who manifest not their own idiosyncrasies, but the very presence of God, which is flowing through us through the Spirit and the Word. And all of that manifests because we, we make the kingdom a priority. We make His Word a priority. We make prayer a priority. We make fellowship, the breaking of bread, the encouragement of sitting around talking about spiritual things with spiritual people, and a concern for the needs of others that will legitimately look at people who are oppressed and say, God has an answer for you, and I'm part of that answer. So we share what we've been given in abundance with them. And suddenly people will not judge us for what we don't have, but they'll, but they'll covet what it is we do. And they'll come up and they'll say, you know something? I, I, can you tell me about this Jesus? Because it looks like... People don't like you because you like him. And I don't get that. Can you explain that to me? You know, I, I, I see that some of your leaders got arrested or persecuted or put down, but, 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 but you guys aren't really discouraged by that. You, you seem, in fact, to be, I don't know, happy. <laughs> I don't know how you can be happy. I mean, they're putting you in jail. I mean, they, they, they just, I mean, but you're happy. How are you happy? Why is the, why, can you explain that to me? And I look at your churches and I see something that, that, that we don't have. People who come from all different backgrounds, giving a rip about one another, caring about one another, 
Not just in saying, oh, oh, poor thing, but, but legitimately carrying one another's burdens. And not only your own burdens, you, you reach out to the community of people around you because, I mean, why, why would you help people who don't like you? That seems stupid. But you do it. Why? It's because we have received grace and mercy and love. And how dare we withhold those things from other people who desperately need to receive grace and mercy and love. And that church becomes a transformative church. But more importantly, we become transformative because we're happy. When the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and self-control, that's not just some cereal box promise of better health. You, you get it? You know, eat this cereal and all these wonderful health things. That's God telling you that if his spirit dwells within you, you have a right to expect those things. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being confused. I'm tired of being intimidated. I'm tired of feeling weak and lonely or whatever emotion you're feeling. I am a spirit-filled child of God, and that means more than just praying in tongues. It means that I can love people who don't love me, and I can experience love even if the people around me don't share love with me. I can experience joy despite my circumstances, peace despite my circumstances, patience despite the frustrations of life that come up. I just finished my taxes. Dear God, I want to shoot the IRS. You know, it's, it's, but I can have peace in the midst of that and, and, and patience and kindness. I can be kind. I can be kind to people. And I can suffer long without it being a burden because the Spirit of God has empowered me to be that. So where do we go? We make the priorities of God our priorities. So that's a pretty overwhelming thing to do, isn't it? That's a lot to ask for. Well, how do you eat an elephant? Congratulations, I want to introduce you to some elephant bites. Ushers, if you would hand these out. <laughs> Come on up. And, uh, what am I handing you? It's not an elephant bite. It's a 21-day self-guided study of the Gospel of John. And I know many of you have Bible reading plans. Maybe all of you. I know as well that many of you are behind on your Bible reading plans. Anybody want to say amen to that? I may, I, yeah, go, not me. I don't know what you're talking about. You started in January with the best of intent. It, it is now April. Maybe things have got a little rough. We got this from Tyndale House Publishing. We want to thank Tyndale House for this. This is a, a, a how to get through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is an incredible foundation. This is the book we recommend for every single born-again believer. When you start in your relationship with God, we send you to the Gospel of John. That's we pastors. Because there's truths in there that can be transformative. I remembered questioning my salvation and I'd been saved about three weeks and I'd gotten back into some old behaviors and I remember opening up the Gospel of John and reading about God's love for me and this peace of God just fell upon me in my dorm room. I remember being on my knees by my bed and just realizing that nothing I could ever do could stop God from loving me. And, I, and that, that, that blew me away. I, that literally, I can still 
remember the goosebumps and the feelings that I got that, that night. It was about midnight, Rolla, Missouri, of all places. And I realized that God loved me because I was reading the Gospel of John. You'll see that there's a, there's a you know, 40 approximately verses every day with some, something to think about. You'll see on the side that there's also some additional notes. If you'll turn that over, you'll see a QR code in the back, and you can click on that, or you can go to our webpage, and we'll take you to additional resources. There's literally, this is, in truth, a 17-page Bible study with notes and recommendations, but, but we're giving you the elephant bite version, okay? But if you want to go deeper, it's available for you. So the question is, do we want to get serious about being born again and spirit-filled? Then let's start eating the elephant one bite at a time by making the Word of God a priority, by making prayer a priority, by looking for opportunities to sit and break bread together and, and engage in conversations of a spiritual nature about how we can encourage one another to love and good works. And let's begin to look for opportunities to see brokenness around us be a conduit of grace and love and healing. And don't be intimidated by impossible situations because we serve an impossible God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of our brothers and sisters in Christ from, from the first century AD. I thank you for Luke and his willingness to record what the church was like after the resurrection. How, how you moved in the church, how you flowed through Christians, how they were different than the people around them, how they, how they introduced something to the world that had never been seen before. And that's a community of spirit-filled Christians, filled with your wisdom, filled with your power, filled with your love, filled with your revelation. People who, who made the kingdom of God the focus of their ambition. And Lord, this seems a monumental task for us to, to transform where we are in America in 2023 into some semblance of what the church was in that first century. But God, you didn't share that history with us to intimidate us or scare us off or, or make us feel bad or regretful. You shared it with us to encourage us that this is what's possible that miracles are possible, that signs and wonders are possible, but more importantly, transformation of our character is possible. We can be different, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, just where you're at, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to touch us afresh this morning. We need a fresh infilling of you, Father God. We need a fresh revelation of what it means to be spirit-filled. pray for everyone online, everyone who's watching later this evening, later this week, maybe a year from now. We pray that this word is living and active and it goes to the core of our souls. If anyone's relationship with God has, has fallen away, God, we pray for them. And, and I invite you as a pastor, this is the moment when you can say, God, I want to turn back to you and restore and renew my relationship with you. And it's really that easy. All you have to do is say, I want to restore my relationship with you. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, if you've never made that, that statement of, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his, his divinity, his lordship, I believe in his death, 
believe in his resurrection and I want him to forgive me of my sins. This is the moment when you, whether you're online or live, you can just, you can just say that. You can say, Jesus, save me. Save me. Save my soul. And if you cry out to Christ, he will not ignore your cry. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, it says. You don't have to be left out. So Holy Spirit, do what you do so beautifully and well. Create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in us. And draw us into intimate relationship with you. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he illuminate the path of your life going from this moment forward. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Encounter Church, visit ecdenver.org or find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.